Hi, my name is Alan. I am the producer of the Courage to Lead interview series. I grew up in Australia, but my ancestors were first fleeters. I've learnt that this land is and always will be land cared for by the oldest Indigenous culture in the world, and that that land is and always will be Aboriginal land. Their culture is all about storytelling. So today I acknowledge the Darak people where this podcast is recorded and we extend our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And I truly hope you enjoy today's story, which is someone's individual journey on how they traverse the challenges and the joys of becoming a leader. Welcome to the Courage to Lead interview series, our next guest, Amy Brown. Amy Brown's CV is extensive, but her most recent roles were probably the best known to our audience. She was the Chief Executive Officer for Investment New South Wales, resigning from that position in August 2022. She was also the Secretary of the Department of Enterprise, Investment and Trade, again resigning from that position in September 2022. What you're in for today is an absolute treat of a very honest and inspiring leader in when Amy shares her story with us today. Amy shared her experience as a young woman in the workforce, often being the only woman in the room. She emphasised the importance of mentors and support in navigating challenging situations. Amy believes in the importance of curiosity and being armed with the right information. She highlighted the importance of doing your homework before meetings and before challenges and not being afraid to ask questions. Amy believes that good leadership involves empowering others to lead and passing on that knowledge and experiences to the next generation. Amy's journey is a testament to the power of resilience, curiosity and the courage to lead. I hope her story inspires you as much as she has inspired me. Welcome to the show, the, the Courage to Lead interview series, someone I've been um, trying to get for a long time um, and I'm thrilled that she even wanted to come on the show. A lady who I um, have known for quite a while, actually, um, Amy Brown. So thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Alan. And I'm <laughs> glad, like you, that we could finally make this happen. It's yeah. taken a while, but we got here. <laughs> we did. We did. So I won't go into your CV is huge, so I won't go into that. But I, but I might just tell listeners how I come to know you and why I was so keen to get you on the show. Um, okay. There's a number of leaders that I know uh, that rate you so highly um, uh, that um, say, tell me all the time how wonderful they were, how wonderful it was to be in a room where you were the leader sharing your stories, sharing your support, uh, and just, um, and these are pretty good, good value leaders. I won't embarrass them on the show, but um, <clears throat> they were, um, they just sing your praises so highly. But how I know you, is in my homelessness hat when I was in the police as a commander. Um, initially, you were on a, a board for Burdekin, I think Burdekin House, the 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 adolescent refuge around the yeah, northern beaches somewhere. Yeah, I was helping somewhere. out. I was helping yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, the next time I got to meet you, you were you were a consultant or uh, at, at PwC in the city, and I got given somehow I got given your name that you might <clears throat> be able to help me. Um, just set fire to someone so we could get some movement and do something different in the homelessness space so we yep. get some influential people to change the narrative. Um, and yes. you and you 
you got me in about three or four major meetings um, at that level that started the narrative. And and I think as Alice Greenwich says, um, we didn't get um, what we wanted, but we were always failing forward um, yes. at the time. So thank you for what you did for me and for homelessness. Um, and that's why I wanted you on the show. So, so um, that's enough from me. Uh, um, every guest that comes on the show gets asked two questions. When I, and you asked me yesterday, is there anything I need to know? And I've kind of fibbed to you because I said no. <laughs> uh, so, um, so the first question is, um, what was your first ever true experience of leadership? And it can be as a five-year-old or it can be yesterday or anywhere wow. in between. Yeah, interesting. Um, and, yeah, it's funny, Alan. You clearly do not want things to be over-rehearsed or over-prepared with this <laughs> podcast because no. I've just kind of, you know, gone running into it, if you will. Um, look, I guess the story, you know, just a very quick story as to how I ended up in Australia, which then shaped um, me as a leader quite a bit, including when I was a lot younger, um, was we moved here when I was nine. Um, because my dad, who grew up in very impoverished circumstances in the valleys of Wales, um, in deteriorated public housing with no electricity, no hot water, and an outside toilet shed between four families, um, his parents couldn't read. And it was actually him having access, uh, firstly being transferred to a safe and secure council house, which you know, is um, the importance of stable accommodation in empowering someone in their life, but also access to good quality public education and a role model in the GP in the local community who saw a twinkle in dad's eye when he talked about medicine. Um, and that eventually led to him getting a scholarship to university in London and us migrating to Australia. And I think from a very young age, because I knew that story and because I was kind of nine when we eventually ended up in Australia, I almost took it as a responsibility on myself um, that because dad had broken his intergenerational cycle of disadvantage on my behalf and I was a beneficiary of that, I had a little bit of purpose, even as kind of a teenager, to almost kind of speak on behalf of people who don't get the opportunity to, um, or be able to kind of um, make things happen um, in a broader kind of sense. Um, I'm a Christian, so I've grown up in the church as well. So I suppose just opportunities, volunteering through my church, in my local community, um, of course, starting to nudge into school leadership positions, um, because dad, did all the work that he did, I then ended up at a great school, but none of that was lost on me. So I think um, I wasn't just limited by my own circumstances. I really, from a young age, started to look more broadly about um, the intrinsic worth and equal value of all people and what I could do to help other people um, reach their opportunities as well. Beautiful. So so your, your dad, your dad, as, uh, a, yeah, as a, and that's quite often... Um, most like you're, I think you're the 32nd interview on the show. Over, yeah. So it's been going over for a year now, and it, it's either a grandparent, a parent, or if someone hasn't grown up in that space, um, you know, someone of influence. So yeah, that's yeah. that's that's pretty beautiful. Um, so where did you live in Sydney when you came to Sydney? Um, so we oh. were on, we moved around a bit, but we were on the Upper North Shore um, okay. of Sydney. Yeah. So and I went to some some great schools as well. Um, so I was very, very fortunate. So your dad comes from poverty in Wales yeah. to the North North Shore of Sydney. Wow, yeah, that's what right. a story. That's right. Yeah, and he was a gastroenterologist at the SAN um, and did a lot of work at Concord Hospital as well. Um, so, yeah, he's, he, he 
did really well. And part of it, I think, is grab, grabbing opportunities with both hands. But part of it is um, him having those access to opportunities through the hard work of other people. So it's it's usually a combination of both. Yes, I think when managed yeah. people manage to kind of uh, you know be alleviated from their own difficult circumstances. Good story. Good story. And I had no idea that um, like you, you, we haven't rehearsed at all. We're, this is Carl. No. I had no idea that you. Um, uh, started off from another country before you because you definitely sound Aussie now so oh yeah <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm good at it I'm a bit of a chameleon like I kind of um you know whatever circumstances I'm in I get so into it that um I was always going to pick up a thick Aussie accent because yeah. <laughs> you know this is where I am so good, that's good what stuff I do. So yeah. the second question is, and, and and you obviously haven't, um, you don't know what's coming. So, um, what's something about Amy Brown that no one knows? Oh gosh. Okay. Well, um, I jumped out of a plane and did a solo skydive when I was sixteen. Yeah. Um, the first girl in Barker College Cadet Unit to get her skydiving wings. Um, which for people who know me well, I'm not that much of an outdoorsy person. Like I like, you know, bushwalking or swimming or something, but, um, for me to jump out of a plane, that is pretty out there. Um, so that's, yes, I don't think anyone would guess that I have been able to do that. I was young. I wouldn't do it now. Yeah. Yeah. Have have you done it since? Oh gosh, no. It was because it wasn't tandem, right? It was like, you're just, it was the most terrifying, um, experience of my life, actually. That's that's gutsy. That's um... me done. Yeah, I've thought about it, but no, I can't, even all the things I've done, I can't do that. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I read, I've, obviously, I'm, I'm most of the way through your book, Courage to Lead, and you have done some pretty extreme physical endeavours, so I'm sure you could handle jumping out of a plane as well. But I don't want to. <laughs> so, no, fair. No, I, don't think, I really don't think I could. Um, all right. So that's the, the um, icebreakers out of the way. Um, cool. So And you've killed them. Um, so the rest of the interview is all about you. So you're, you've kind of given us a little bit of a heads up already in the answer about your dad, um, what, 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 which way you wanted to go with your life, um, like yeah. being a voice for the disadvantaged, that for both. Yeah. So that's a, and that's there's quite a few people um, on the show that have have that view, a voice for the mm-hmm. voiceless. Um, so where do you want to take us? Where, you know, where, where, how does Amy Brown um, get made? And you can start yeah. where, wherever you want to start. And I will let you go most of the time. But if something, um, if you, if you answer, if it's over and done with within a minute, well, I'll keep on, keep on going. <laughs> Yeah, okay. I'll probably need some back and forth, you know, like yeah, you, yeah, say, you don't yeah, mind going will. down a yeah, few rabbit yeah. holes. But um, yeah, so uh, probably my um, career journey is pretty interesting um, and probably says a lot about who I am, I guess. So um, obviously I left school when I was 18 and enrolled in well, social sciences and law at Macquarie University. And within about you know, six months or so, I was already wanting to get into the workforce. Like I just, you know, really love being part of a team, contributing something. The academic side of university was fascinating and everything, but I was just itching, you know, the fact, the thought of doing law for five years before I could set foot in a workplace was not what I was up for. So I got a job um, in a library at a barrister's chambers. Um, And back in those days, you know how digitally these days there are kind of computer programs where if a case is mentioned in another case, it tracks it through, if you will. So you can say, okay, well, we started off with this case in the Supreme Court in 1947, and here's all the other times it's been mentioned, and that's how people do their legal research. 
in those days there were not digital um, kind of programs for that. And so someone had to stand in the law library and every time a case was mentioned, put a sticker on that case. The stickers were kind of half the size of a stamp maybe yeah, yeah. that directed people to when it was then kind of followed through as a precedent. And I was standing in this library and one of the barristers walked in and said, I've been observing you your whole kind of summer holidays every day, eight hours a day. And you just have, you know, unrelentlessly stuck stickers in these books. You haven't complained. You've hardly even asked for a lunch break. Um, the books are so dusty. By the end of the day, your suit, you know, my pale, blue, yep, yep. pale pink linen suit is covered in dust and you do it with a smile on your face. I'd love you to be my practice assistant, which basically wow. means helping him out, doing legal research, you know, billing clients, typing up a few memos. Um, and so I was only 18 and I grabbed that opportunity with both hands while still studying, you know, law at the same time. Um, and it was amazing because he was a defamation barrister. The cases, for example, were um, today, tonight, back in the 80s, uncovered a kind of very um, sophisticated operation that was basically a paedophile ring here in yep. New South Wales. Yep. With, you probably know what I'm talking about, um, with a number of high profile Sydney siders involved. And because it was a defamation trial and he was, you know, um, defending Channel 7, it's like a quasi criminal trial because what you're proving is that it's um, true and it's in the public interest to know it's true, the defense of qualified privilege. So I was right, only 18 and some of the stuff I read and had to kind of digest and understand was pretty confronting for someone so young, particularly growing up a little bit sheltered on the North shore um, in the Christian community. And so that really threw me into, um, you know, what is work and how do you uh, use the skills that you have to help make a better outcome, essentially for citizens, you know, because um, of, of the types of cases we were dealing with um, and for the victims of the crime, essentially. Mm -hmm. So that was my, my kind of, I was studying while doing that at the same time, which then meant that when grad positions came around for law firms at the end of my degree, um, I got a great role at what was then called Freehills, now called Herbert Smith Freehills, um, working for a very senior corporate partner called Philippa Stone. Um, uh, in kind of M&A and equity capital markets and things. Um, long story short, my first thing I got to do was sell Sydney Airport on behalf of the Australian government. But just wow. to qualify that, I wasn't selling Sydney Airport. I was like filing the paper and taking the notes in a few meetings and trying my best to learn. But being quite a curious person, I didn't just sort of do that and, and do the bare minimum to get through the day. I was asking questions of the more senior lawyers and if they needed something done, even if it was, you know, dashing across the city to deliver a document or pick up some dry cleaning, my hand was the first to go up, mm. um, which then meant, you know, when a job, when a senior partner returned from London um, where he'd been working, he walked into my office and said, look, my law firm I've just left in London is looking for someone. Why don't, you know, do it, go on an adventure. Um, so then I ended up working in an American law firm that serviced the Middle East, um, doing essentially project finance kind of transactions, which again, for a 26 year old was pretty kind of confronting, um, to my project was in Egypt. So that was a lot of flying back and forth, a uh, bit of food poisoning mm. on the way. <laughs> uh, it was, it was hard going, um, and then that's where, while I was in London, I met my husband, Rory. Yep. And so by the time we moved back to Australia, I moved back to Australia, I brought home a 112 kilo Irish souvenir 
um, called Rory Brown. <laughs> and we, yeah, yeah, we're going um, there for a minute. That's and true. the rest <laughs> is history. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, that's anyway. That's the first kind of chapter of my career before I ended up coming to government. So let's um, let's just explore. I mean, you've jumped so many. It's all about being keen and taking opportunities. Um, so let you know, it's a big deal. You you, you actually says you kind of give it a hint about it. Yeah, you, you had a a sheltered upbringing. You, you and maybe, maybe 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 not, but um, that's yeah, how you yeah, describe. Yeah, so fair. so so it's a big deal to say yes. I'm going to go to London um, yeah. and leave your support network and everything. Yep. Um, yep. Do you want it? Just give us a couple. There's got to be a couple of stories there where I mean you're talking about food poisoning, but there's <laughs> got to be there's got to be a couple of stories there where it was really hard. Have I done the right thing? And then there's be a story there where wow, I'm glad I did this. Yeah, big time. And I think when we do push ourselves out of the comfort zone and into the courage zone, that's mm. actually where the magic happens. Yeah. Um, but yes, I moved to London and didn't know a single soul um, other than one girl I went to high school with but had not seen since high school. And I looked her up and she was so generous in spirit and invited me, you know, to the kind of wine and cheese nights with her friends and introduced me to, you know, some people. So she is a beautiful um, friend to this day um, but also I think when you're a Christian as well you've kind of got a bit of a church network so my yeah. brother had lived there the year before he was an active member of one of the city churches called mm -hmm. St Helens Bishopsgate um, and so once I showed up at that uh, they're very good at inviting you along to so-and-so's house to watch the football and you know yeah. have some nachos and whatever and I um I'd only been there a, a month or so and again I, I lived by myself I didn't know anyone. So it was still a big kind of piece of uh, stepping out mm. in, in trust that this was going to work out. Um, but I got invited to someone's house to watch the football and I'd never, I didn't know if they meant rugby or yeah, soccer. Yeah, yeah, I had no yeah. idea. Um, but I showed up at this apartment in Canary Wharf with a bottle of red wine and some Marks and Spencer biscuits and sat down staring at this TV. I'm like, I don't even know what this game is. And then my future husband, Rory, came and sat down next to me oh, um, yeah. wow. and we, you know, chatted for the whole game, probably annoyed everybody in the room because we would yeah. shut up. Um, and I rang my sister that night. I said, I met the guy I'm going to marry. So wow. <laughs> it all worked out pretty well. But yeah, there was just, I think sometimes you've got to, you know, show up to a situation, learn how to make good conversation, um, be interested in people's lives, learn something new. And good always comes of it. You know, there's no such thing as a wasted conversation, in my view. That's a good... Um, I hear so many people say... You see so many examples of it where people don't give people the time of day. Yeah. Um, uh, only, but only uh, only if they think they can get something from that person. Exactly. Uh, um, but I think um, what you just said is so true. Like, everyone's got something to offer. Uh, yeah. And everyone... You can, you can learn something like, something from everyone that's what i love about those interviews like yeah uh, you're, you're just i'm learning something from you straight away some of the some of the different aspects of of your life so um so i i can't imagine um you're in london you're working for an american law firm yeah. and you're working on issues in the middle east in egypt so yes. at a time like that's you're only 26 i won't ask you how old you're now, uh, now but it's a while ago um, it was a while ago, yeah. <laughs> um so what challenges did that 
did you face like if you were going to the Middle East on your to Egypt on your own? Yeah, on your own. Uh, yeah. What what challenges did you have there? Yeah, I have. I I couldn't quite have predicted just how um, I suppose tricky that time was going to be. Um, firstly, there was the kind of trend, the the nature of the work in these American law firms. You know, it's almost like a twenty four hour operation because you have time differences with your clients and ridiculous deadlines. Um, I thought working in a big Australian law firm was long hours, but this was a whole, you know, it was kind of 80 to 100 hour weeks. Mm. Um, and again, even things like uh, Sunday is a working day in the Middle East because they okay. have Friday off. So, yeah. you know, it means you're working all day Sundays. So it was very hard to kind of have any downtime. And I look back on photos now and go, oh, the, I bagged under my eyes. But um, at the same time, I learned an incredible amount. Um, I felt a little bit out of my depth quite a lot. And our the client that we were looking after was a combination of the Egyptian government and the British government. It was a bit like a public-private partnership equivalent mm. um, that we have here in uh, Australia. So um, it was kind of big clients and a lot of um, a lot of suspicion, I think, mm. between the two parties uh, that we kind of had to navigate through and just it, things like um, when when we were going to sign a document that was, you know, a thousand pages long or something, they wanted me to sit and initial every single page to make sure that we hadn't swapped the pages out. That's not real. Like sometimes you do something along those lines in Australia, but not as a matter of course. Yeah. And you know, you're like, you know what, you're the client. If this is going to make you feel better about what you're doing, we're going yeah. to do it. So, no, yeah. you know, I just, I decided that no task would be too much because mm. if there are cultural differences that we had to accommodate, that's part of the job. But it did mean it was very full on as a, as a kind of chapter of my career, if you will. Okay. I, I, I've just, I've interviewed other people um, uh, in, in a similar kind of corporate structure that you're talking about where there, there is no kind of, it's just 24 hours on. Um, yeah. Did you have drama being a woman back then, um, representing your firm and, and your client was a male? Um, did, yeah. how, did that go? How, how, how did that go? I think, yeah, it definitely, I mean, and I was quite young as well, which has been a little bit of a theme of my career. I, you mm. know, people always say, oh, you're quite young. I'm like, oh, that just feels so gendered. Like I don't, yes, I don't yes, hear male yes. leaders ever described as young. Yeah. Um, but anyway, oh, yeah, so yes, yeah. <laughs> there was definitely that. Um, but then again, funnily enough in our firm, we did have a lot of, you know, very impressive women. So it wasn't like I was in the minority. When I felt more in the minority, strangely, was when I came back to Australia in the infrastructure sector here. Often in Australia in that sector, I was the only woman in the room. So I feel almost in London and, and even the Middle East, there was there were more women um, at the table than you would expect. And in it's, Australia, there were less women at the table than you would expect. It says, I mean, and I, I just asked that question because I... I my daughter's hugely gender, um, you know, gender equality. And, Conscious, and, and, yeah. yeah. And, and, and my book kind of talks about that a lot. Um, so I, I don't have the same view, but um, what I love, if you, if you look at the evidence, like that's ages ago, you're 26 years old, your firm sends you to do the job. So they yeah. have they have faith in you uh, and, you're, and you're, doing, you're doing the job. Um, you said something there, um, something along challenges. Did, was in the answer in that answer where you had to deal with your client how did yeah. you uh, how did you how did you navigate some of those challenges um when, yeah. when, the, when the when the going got difficult 
Yes. And I think when you're in um, professional services, and again, I was partner of PwC later on in my career, so I would apply this to that as well. If something's an issue for your client, it is an issue, you know, as much, whether or not you think it's um, a silly issue or misdirected or whatever. And so I think one reason, and it was very hard to do this, was just to take everything that was worrying them or that they needed advice or, um, you know, kind of comfort on, I had to then just keep coming back to the table and saying, this is why this is okay, or this is how this document worked. And I remember being very overwhelmed at the volume of almost questions or objections to what, to some, a lot of the finer detail, because again, like I said, you're dealing across two different cultures. So it's not like, you know, in Australia, if you do a PPP, for example, it's the same banks, it's the same construction firms, it's the same governments, there's a standard set of documents and you get on with it. It's still really complicated. Yeah. And there's a lot that, you know, is unprecedented. But this was, I think, another level of trying to get two parties um, who are allegedly on the same team, because this was, you know, they were co-sponsors, I guess, of these projects. It, I don't know. Sometimes I just felt really overwhelmed about it, uh, particularly when I was on ground in country, because we didn't have a lot of the technology support yeah. um, that we were having in the London office, for example. So there was a lot of trying to, you know, get dial up internet in hotel rooms to, yeah. you know, all of that stuff back in um, back in the whatever year it was, I don't yeah. remember, 2005 <laughs> or something. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it was a different era. And you said, um, and this is um, this is where I was trying to go with that, that question, you said that there were times when it was really difficult um, yep. and, and you were out of your comfort zone. Um, yeah. So do you want to give some advice around how you manage being out of your comfort zone? Do you, does Amy Brown just back Amy Brown or does she have a, does she have a good coach and mentor and confidant yeah. that she can ring um, when, when those situations arise? Yeah, I think I'm always out of my comfort zone. Um, it tends to be where I hang out. Um, but Amy Brown now dealing with out of comfort zone has a lot more mentors and scaffolding in place to help me work through the situations. I think 20 years ago, it was more of just a deal with each piece one bit at a time. You know, like that saying, how do you eat an elephant one yeah, piece yeah. at a time? Not getting overwhelmed at a tidal wave of issues and, um, you know, situations I was about to have to face, but just say, okay, what's the next task that I have to do? What's the next right thing? Um, and hope that the bigger picture looked after itself. Because um, I was at a different stage of my career. I wasn't leading a lot of people. Uh, mm. I was just trying to get these transactions done, literally in a transactional sense. Yeah. Whereas now I think taking up, you know, going more kind of looking at things, the bigger picture, getting advice from people I respect, and then getting into the, um, you know, bones of the organisation to see what's going on, what's the culture, what, what are people worried about? That's a very different style of leadership from just trying to get through the day. <laughs> Yeah. which was how it was back then. So I, mean, I asked this question, one of these questions towards the end, but it's quite interesting. Let's say 2005, you know, you're around that mid-20s mark. Um, yeah. How, where does that confident, like you, 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 you've, you've jumped out of your comfort zone from Australia um, to go and work for this American law firm and you're in the Middle East. Um, where did that come from? Where's that belief? How, how can, what, what advice can you give someone at, at that age to, to build that belief? Like you said, one, one bite at a time for an element, have some yeah. faith in the process. What, what's your, where did that come from? 
Yeah, that's right. And I think um, I think the fact I've always been a very curious person helps a lot because I've never been shy about asking questions um, and kind of admitting I don't admitting I don't know something in certain contexts, right? There has to be a point when you're in a meeting where you've got to lean in and back yourself and all of that. But at the same time, I'm perfectly happy to speed dial a more senior lawyer or a peer and say, I don't quite understand how this thing works um, and slow it right down to learn it. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm quite a good, le you know, learner of new areas or, or pieces of information. So I think that enabled me to build up at least a technical skill set I could fall back on, even though some of the relationship issues were really hard. Okay. You actually jumped over it pretty quickly. Um, what you, you you went from 18 to university. Um, yeah. What did you, what, what your qualifications coming out of university? What, what, oh what? yeah, <laughs> so I got um, a Bachelor of Social Sciences specialising mm -hmm. in human geography, sociology, and a little bit of economics, um, and law. So, okay. you know, yeah, Adam Macquarie, fine establishment. Good one. Okay, okay. Um, so I think you had us in your story. You brought this, uh, what did you call him, 112-kilo person yeah. back? Irish souvenir, <laughs> uh, yeah. Irish souvenir back, uh, to, back to Australia. To, uh, is that the next part of the story? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> if we're going chronological, that would be fair. Are you married so, by then or do you get married yeah. in Australia? Uh, we just got married by then. Yeah, we got married toward the end of my time in London. Okay. Yep. Good stuff. Came home. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so I think it got to the point where I said, okay, um, we need to have babies. So either we, you know, start a family in London, which to me looked, I just, the thought of taking a pram on the tube was just not where I wanted to be. Yeah. Um, and we actually came here for um, my sister's wedding after we'd been married for a year. And it was, you know, a beautiful January day and we were, you know, it's been a couple of weeks. And my husband just turned to me and said, what are we doing in London? It's yeah. amazing. <laughs> um, and he'd been in London for 10 years already. So yeah. he was kind of ready. Uh, so I probably would have stayed longer. I was only there for kind of, you know, just under four years. But it was a good time to come home and very fortunate time because it was just prior to the global financial crisis. Okay. So, so to be back in Australia, settled in a job just as that hit was actually a really good thing because then it meant I could diversify what I did a little bit. And because governments spend money in a downturn, that's when I started specialising in government infrastructure, which became my absolute passion. Okay. So talk, talk to us about that. Where... Yeah, so, um, yeah, came back, GFC, my husband was working for Optus Singtel um, in a really great role. It evolved a lot of global travel, though, so we'll come back to that in a moment when kids come on the scene. But, um, and then I was at Minters, which is a fantastic law firm. And again, all the work seemed, a lot of the work seemed to be going into government infrastructure. And specifically, the partner I worked for specialised in schools, hospitals, housing and prisons, what's called social infrastructure which then finally, it's like the scales fell off my eyes and I went, this is what I want to do with my life. Um, because to me, a foundation of education and housing is what people need to be their most productive, independent, connected and well version of themselves. Um, and so getting to work on the private side of government infrastructure projects. So that's when there's private finance going in 
um, that was a really great few years. Um, and I really learned a lot around how those projects work. Things like Royal North Shore Hospital, for example, um, Bonnie Rig Housing Estate, uh, a lot of the, the metros are transport infrastructure, but they were just starting to come onto the scene. Mm -hmm. um, and then when Mike Baird was a treasurer, he did a special, well, the department did a special recruitment drive to bring people from the private side of the table onto the government side of the table um, to really drive best practice and, you know, help government work through what the private sector needed um, to, you know, because everything's a partnership, right? So how does each side, you know, bring their best to make these projects happen? Um, so I came into New South Wales Treasury at the uh, start of 2013. Um, and pretty much specialised on the social infrastructure side of things, which was absolutely amazing. It was it was the golden era. We were doing so many PPPs. I can handle on hearts. Do you want to um um like I think I know what that the three P's yeah. mean. Do you want to because this interview goes all over the world. So um, yes. Yeah, yeah. So PPPs are public private partnerships. Um, the UK term is PFI, privately financed initiatives. Um, and it's basically where um, the, there's a, a public infrastructure outcome, such as um, a well-functioning hospital uh, that treats patients to a high standard, um, where the infrastructure component in particular is a combination of private sector uh, expertise and financing and public sector expertise and financing. Um, so a good example might be Royal North Shore Hospital, where the core services are pro um, provided by the government, you know, uh, publicly funded nurses, um, facilities, uh, sorry, um, you know, support staff, things like that. And then the asset itself is built and financed and owned and maintained by the private sector. Okay. So the private sector is bringing what they do well, government's bringing what they do well. And the whole idea is that it has a better outcome um, for citizens. It, the risks are shared, which again, motivates people to bring their best in terms of the running of the facility. Um, and, you know, whenever people have to put money on the table, they're very motivated for mm. a good outcome because they want their money back. <laughs> so um, it's quite a good model. It was used a lot. Uh, it's used less now, particularly in New South Wales, um, but projects such as uh, Northern Beaches Hospital, Sydney Light Rail, Northwest Metro, they were all the, and Ronald Shore, like I said, they're all the PPPs that were done around that time. Some schools as well. Okay. So... There's some serious skills building here, and you're in you're in that. So Mike, there obviously, uh, so you're one of the people that comes from private into the yeah. into into the treasury because you talked about being that. I've interviewed other people um, in this kind of in this similar space, and I'm just curious to see how you how you navigate it. So you've got all these different people with different agendas. Quite yeah. often, quite often they don't get on <laughs> um, yeah they, they, I mean they've got a common goal but uh, they quite often they don't get on um, how did you navigate that uh, and when do you become when do you learn how to navigate that well yeah that's a good question um, and you're right on the like even all those parties I just named that get involved in these projects that was probably less than half of the number that actually there are so that's a lot of different stakeholders and a lot of different um, you know, concerns from each party. So I think 
a lot of the time, I mean, it starts off with listening, right? Um, the best before you go charging in with a, a criticism or objection or a solution, you need to start off with some very active listening to understand why people have the concerns that they do. So if you use um, Northern Beaches Hospital as an example, it was a very complicated kind of privately licensed facility that provided care to public patients. Like even that as a proposition raises concerns from the nurses and midwives union and the local MPs and the two hospitals that have kind of been um, transitioned out of um, Treasury have their concerns, the Ministry of Health, there's so many um, players, the local community, should have named them first, um, around the table. But until you understand where each party is coming from, you can't go and start proposing solutions. Um, so a big a centrepiece of that stakeholder engagement is listening and clear communication. It's also embedding some of the stakeholders in the project themselves. Um, so one of the things I like about that project, it was, it was had quite a strong leadership from the local health district, which is relevant because the hospital has to operate within the local, within the broader system. But having the local health district bought in from the beginning um, meant that when it came to the tricky bit of us all having to, you know, sign on the dotted line, if you will, their hearts and minds were already um, in the project and, and supporting for, supportive of the outcomes. Um, there's sometimes a little bit of what happens if we don't. Um, in, in some of these projects in particular, if we don't do it this way, it won't happen at all mm. <laughs> because they need the value for money outcome. Um, some of these projects aren't high enough up the capital list to get direct funding without actually saying, actually, we need some private money to help make this happen. Um, and here's why that model is a good thing, because it has more parties um, invested in and championing for the right outcomes. So, you know, sometimes you actually have to say, oh, um, we all win or we all lose here. Um, and if we don't, if, if we don't do it together, then it just won't happen for the community. And when you paint things in that community um, level kind of I don't know, framework, um, then people are more likely to be supportive because they know there's a greater good. Well, okay. So again, these are serious skills. Um, uh, that you, so you're in New South Wales Treasury at this stage uh, and you're just giving yep. that, that example of Northern Beaches House Hospital, which is a pretty new project. Where do you yep. learn, um, where do you learn, uh, Where have you got, coaches or mentors or people you know have you just yeah. built it have you built it yourself this yeah. this skill base or yeah or, or how do you learn this skill base yeah well I'm a bit of a painful watcher right so um I worked for Peter Regan at the time who's a great you know he was he's now CEO of Sydney Metro and even just kind of sitting in a meeting in the earlier days and observing um, you know, how he put forward arguments, the really simple, clear, concise language he uses, um, the really good examples, because often you you don't win hearts and minds through technical detail, you win it through storytelling um, and converting things from technocrat into human. So learning that, that that's a good way to do business, I guess, I, I kind of did some observation. Um, can, can, you give a, can you give an example of... Um... A story like a technocrat in I love that that term technocrat yeah. in human. Can you give a, oh, an example of uh, this guy in action? Oh yeah. Oh well, I think he look. He was very good at um, explaining why um, a, a like why the objective of the hospital was. It's not about the building. Um, it's not about how tall the grass is. It's not 
about how often the windows are cleaned, although they are important things, it's about an appropriately treated patient. Um, and patients won't want to use the hospital if the facilities aren't well maintained and the grass isn't mowed and the um, windows aren't cleaned. But that's, they're not ends in themselves. And often infrastructure people can get very obsessed with the building. Um, and, you know, on a transport project, the tunnel boring machine, they all love their tunnel boring machines. And in a mm. kind of more hospital-related project, the, the layout, these things are important because they enable good clinical treatment, but that they're not an end in itself. The, the outcome for the patient and for the community is actually the outcome that we're seeking. So I think getting that kind of clarity um, around the table was super important. Um, and then interestingly, it was about that time that I um, just, I don't know, I felt like I won lotto. I got Jim Betts as a mentor. Um, and I don't know if you know Jim very well, mm -hmm. but he is a, at the time he was CEO of Infrastructure New South Wales. Um, he was previously head of transport in Victoria. He's now, he then went on to be secretary of planning and now he's secretary at the federal level of infrastructure and a bunch of other things. Um, and I think having a very strong active mentor who is so much more experienced than me, who I could ask every dumb question under the sun and he would never judge me and he would still champion me in a room, um, even though he knew that before the meeting I asked something stupid. That that kind of um, ability to be vulnerable and ask questions and be my true self, I think that's actually one of the biggest reasons my career accelerated as fast as it did from that point forward. So let's go there. And I appreciate you being so, because this is kind of what I'm after. Um, yeah. yeah people don't want the CV. Um, we no. want... We want how the CV kind of got built. Um, so let's kind of exp let's explore the rabbit hole a little bit there. So what position are you at at that stage? Um, and how does this? How do you get assigned such a good mentor? I did know. you did did you ask him or is it just luck or how did it happen? I was a bit of luck. So um, and I think this will be a little bit of insight uh, into my personality. But um, obviously Jim started at Infrastructure New South Wales, it's obvious he's quite well known, but the way that he phrased everything in such human terms, uh, I just, I was just really struck by, you know, a lot of people want to go down in an infrastructure sector. People want to talk about the price of steel um, and all of that. And that's very important, but everything for him came back to what it meant for the community, uh, particularly for vulnerable people in our community. So that obviously that, you know, that had me at hello. Um, and what happened was there was a prison PPP called Grafton Prison, which is now, it's called Clarence Correctional Centre. Um, and Infrastructure New South Wales, the Premier had made a declaration that they would be the kind of procure, instead of the Department of Justice essentially running it, Department of Justice would be the client and Infrastructure New South Wales would run the deal or the project. And I rang him, I didn't know him. Um, I rang up and said, hi, hi, Amy, I do a lot of PPPs. You're about to do a PPP. Could you just clear me a desk and I'll second myself to infrastructure New South Wales to help you with this? And I know all the boring document side because I'm an ex-lawyer and I'll do all the boring bits, right, to help you out. And he, he, just that level of initiative, um, I think he kind of went, oh, wow, this is someone who is wanting to bring their skills to bear but wanting to get involved. Um, let me, let, let, let me just ask you there, because I've done a fair bit of work with government and government's pretty structured in that you can't yeah. make that you can't make that approach and you I can't know. and you can't transfer. 
How did that happen? How did you? <laughs> how did you get? How did you step so? Well, what are we doing? Sidestep I know. the bureaucracy well, of government yeah. to get to get there. Look, it was in the interests of New South Wales Treasury that this thing went well, because mm -hmm. with any big project, there's a big budget to implication. Um, Lani Fru was my boss at Treasury at the time, and she was great and supportive and really wanted me to do well in my career and government to get a good outcome. Um, but I think, you know, Jim then spoke to Lani and it was all, it was actually a good thing for the project and obviously a good thing for me. Um, look, I'm very big on seizing in the moment opportunity. So some things I say to junior people, always have a, in case you see the premier in the lift story in your yeah, back pocket. Yeah, so yeah, if you yeah. bump into someone important, such as a Jim um, or the premier or anyone else, and they say, how's the weather and how are you? Instead of talking about the weather or the footy, you can say, actually, I'm really proud of my team because this week we did blah, 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 and it went really well. And that's more likely to um, make an impact than yeah. just saying, you know, it rained all weekend or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the other thing I that I sometimes do, but try not to be too annoying, is I sometimes walk people to their meetings. So, you know, um, I remember seeing Jim in a coffee queue and he was going back uh, across the road to his office. And I said, oh, I'm going that way too. I'll just walk <laughs> with you. Um, yeah. And even that, you know, I'm not going to bother him for two hours, but even that three minutes, yeah. um, you can make an impression. So there's a little bit of the party, what the party's what you make it with your career. Um, and I well think done. Jim well kind done. of, yeah, I, I'm just muscled my way in, but again, just be careful not to be annoying to very senior people who are busy. But it was it probably just hit the spot that Jim thought, I'm going to keep talking to this person about their career and, and being an open. I remember he said to me, you know, I'm an open open door. Anytime you want advice, um, let me know. So I took him up on it. So, and over to you again now. So you, your boss, Lani through let you go to work yep. as, as the secondee on this yep. infra infrastructure project for Jim, how, and he says he's got an open door policy. Does that, yeah. is that how he becomes your mentor or how does it happen? Yeah, I think so. And the thing with, I think one litmus test for a great leader is people like Jim and other great leaders, they have the ability to magically create time. So when, you know, people who you go to them cause you just wanna, oh, could I just borrow five minutes? I'm, I'm in a tricky work situation. I know they have lots of competing priorities, but they're not looking at their phone. Um, they're not looking one eye at the door. They're not, they just kind of somehow managed to carve this precious time out of their day to meet you where you're at. Um, and I guess, you know, there is a greater good because the more talent we have in the government, yes. um, the better it'll go for citizens. But still, what's in it for them, really? Mm. You know, I'm just an annoying um, band one bothering this very senior CEO. Um, but yeah, I think I think that that is a gift, and um, other you know, lot, the the most impressive leaders that I know, they do have that that kind of. It's like you're the only person in the world when they're when you're talking to them about something that you're struggling with, and I think Jim's always really had that, and so you know, he's he's always been a, a good supporter and a good source of advice. Do you want to share an example of one of those times where Amy Brown didn't know what? The answer was, and he, he made that time for you? Um, yeah, probably because he continued mentoring me when I was at PwC. Um, and I went across to PwC without, um, there wasn't a lot of forethought um, or planning as to what my practice was going to look like and 
how I was going to win work. I loved social infrastructure, but it was, look, a lot of the work I wanted to do probably didn't have as much revenue generation, such as the stuff we were doing in homelessness. Yeah. Um, I had a passion for social housing. Again, in the early days, it was hard to see what the big job was other than to bring lots of people around the table who could pull mm. different levers. But I wasn't, a, I was running it a bit like it was a pro bono practice and it wasn't a pro bono practice. I had revenue that I mm. targets and that was good and right that the firm, you know, always had concerns about that. And so I think I just kind of, I went to Jim a couple of times and said, how, you know, how am I going to turn this into something? And his advice on how to leverage my passion for social infrastructure into um, essentially a service offering that people would want to buy in an advisory sense, I think was very wise. And one of the things he said is you can't do this alone. You can't go to market alone. You need, if the government client can't see you walking in the door with a couple of great bright eyed bushy tailed juniors who you've hired, you need to walk in shoulder to shoulder with at least one other partner to say, look, it's not just me. Um, I've got a lot of people who really believe in this project and want to work on it with me. Yeah. Uh, and then I was eventually <laughs> able to do that. We won some great projects in the schools space and the social affordable housing fund as well. So yeah, I got, I got there in the end, but Jim was very mentoring in that time of my life because I just wasn't quite sure how I was going to finally make this thing work that I'd signed up to without, thinking too much about it and we'll go we've jumped a little bit there but um what i find interesting about this relationship now is like jim's still in the new south wales government in a very high position in 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 that area and he's well he's in the commonwealth government now which is an interesting um kind of twist in the tail so okay. um yeah toward the end of my time in government jim wasn't around which i think anyway I'll yeah, probably leave, leave less said the better. But yeah, um, would it, would it, would it, yeah, um, it would have been great. No, but in PWC, when you what 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 the point I'm trying to make oh, there is uh, you, you yeah, were at yeah. PWC, Jim's yeah. um, Jim's supporting you from a state government level, yeah. as because he's your mentor. Because there's yeah, a relationship he's there. a good person. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. it. And he didn't end up kind of buying any of my services or anything because that would have been weird. But he just kind of helped me translate what I was what I was offering um into language that people that yeah it's a service offering and you have to be able to explain the value you're adding or else who's going to buy it so yeah. it was a really useful worthwhile exercise okay so i've got a couple of um questions out of that then because we're it's um i always i, I could never figure out how you ended, ended up there so you you said it was a spur of the moment decision that you that you went yeah. there um so how you're working in treasury for jim by the sounds of it how do you leave? Oh yeah, a little, a little bit yeah. of both. Yeah, yeah. How do how do you leave that job? How does how does how does the PwC opportunity happen? I know. I look. It's a bit of a funny one. I think I did, you know, three and a half years in government. At that time, and I don't really know why, I didn't really want my boss's job. And you know, sometimes, and I was a little. I think I lacked a bit of maturity, to be honest, because the fact that I looked up and went, "Well, I don't want that job," I assumed that that was the end of the career progression. Um, within government conversation, which is absolutely ridiculous because yeah. government's policy is mobility. And so it didn't occur to me I could, you know, do a, you know, it's like a jungle gym. I could then grab a rung and flip over to Premier and Cabinet or go into educational health, given I was yeah. doing housing and hosp um, hospitals and schools. So I just sort of, PwC then came knocking and said, oh, we need a, another female partner. Um do you want to give this a go? And I just kind of jumped at it without, there wasn't a lot of um, 
career planning or forethought. Um, so yeah, I think it's not that I regretted it because then it did enable me to get my next role back in government mm. as a deputy secretary. So I skipped a level. Yeah. Um, and part of that was because I did PwC. Mm. But um, I don't think I was my best self. Do you want to talk about that? Because um, every, it's quite often you, you read the glossy leadership book stories and, and people never tell you about where they stuffed up. Uh, well, you and, did. And, I've read your book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, that, that's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a bit of a rarity. <laughs> um, I know, it's you, great. Do you want to... Um, do you want to explore what you regretted about your decision? Um, and quite often um, people normally, they might consult their mentor or they might consult their husband or their wife or their partner or their parents um, before they make that jump. Did you do any of that or did you just made the jump? Yeah, I did. But, like, you sort of spin the story you want it to be, if you know what I mean. So I'm like, yeah. oh, I'm at a bit of a junction and... I'll be doing the same work. It's just, which is the true. I'll be doing yeah. the same work, but from the professional services side. And, you know, I've been mostly private sector. So I'm really a private sector person. I just had this stint in government. So I phrased it in a way that made a lot of sense to people. And they go, oh, mm. yeah, of course, sure. Yeah. And there's this huge salary increase. So that mm. made sense to people as well, didn't it? Yeah. So um, I think, yeah, so I did seek advice, but sometimes you ask for advice in the way that you want people to answer if you know yeah what I mean. so it's not you've been, truly you've been, you've, you've been very honest that's good that's yeah. Good. yeah yeah and what did um what what did you do how, how long were you there and what what did you actually you talked about you worked on a couple of projects where you, yeah you, you built a couple of schools and some social housing estates what 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 were the outcomes from from your time at pwc yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I was very proud in the end of what we achieved in terms of the practice and the projects we got to work on with government. Uh, and again, when I came back to government, I ended up on those projects still, wow. <laughs> but on wow. the kind of back on the government side. Um, but one's the Social Affordable Housing Fund, where government is a buy, is buying um, accommodation and tenant outcomes as a service. Again, instead of having to own the building itself, um, which is what you know, I tend to believe in. So it's partnering with community housing providers, yeah, okay. uh, which we all love. So yeah. that's a great project. And then also ensuring better planning of school classroom that, you know, we ended up with a bit of a classroom shortage. So what are we going to do about that? How do we look at population and, and where we need to build new schools and where is it more of a kind of demountable situation um, versus building entirely new schools? And one of the interesting things there is looking at the schools. Um, so at the time, if you look at Campbelltown, nine schools were half full. So why do we, should we build another one or should we look at the issues as to why the ones that are half full are half full and try and solve those sort of social yeah. issues almost. So, you know, one backed onto a, a difficult housing estate. Um, one was a catchment area thing where the human highway went up the middle of it. Um, another one had issues with teachers um, quite, you know, 20 years before and had never managed to quite rebrand. So that sort of service element mm. again it's not just about the building it's about the building keeping the rain off services and outcomes for kids um so they were great projects uh, but i think what i struggled with is instead of being in government um where you're right you know front row tickets to the show getting to design projects for the best outcomes because you can see everything in terms of how all the different bits of government work together 
once once I was in consulting land, I felt like I was in the nosebleed seats of the stadium. Like you're just too yeah. far away from the action. Sometimes you brought in just to write one report so they can say, you know, put a logo on it. Yeah. Um, that's the cynical version. And so I kind of felt like I'd lost a lot of what I loved about yeah. the work. Very honest there. And, and that's – so what – once you were starting to have those feelings, what did you do then? Oh, just again, <laughs> um, serendipity. So um, Premier Berejiklian yeah. um, was made the Premier. And they want, they were looking to hire a Deputy Secretary in her department. The role would become vacant. And they wanted this person to specifically do quite a notable cultural turnaround, um, if I were to put it that way. Again, these were in her in Department of Premier and Cabinet at the time. There were wonderful policy brains and people who understand the cabinet process and whole of government kind of coordination. But um, there was quite a keenness that this that there was a specific team who could lead transactions with the private sector, and the rationale was that if there was a complicated commercial opportunity with the private sector, instead of sending it off to Treasury or Transport. If there's something that, that was important to the Premier that she wanted to keep close, this team should be able to do that from the department themselves. So it was a kind of commercial um, offering. Um, and because I'd done commercial roles in Treasury and PwC, and I'm um, very enthusiastic and passionate about people leadership, I fit the bill quite well. So it meant I got to go across as a Deputy Secretary at that time, which was amazing. So did you have to apply for it? Yeah, what, was, what was the process? Um, how do you prepare to um, secure a job like that? Yeah, I know. Well, yeah, I was lucky. Um, I I'm, sure, took, I'm sure you were. Yeah, <laughs> I took I'm a... sure there skills. No, I, took, I backed myself, actually, because I took a short-term contract, which by that point I was the breadwinner of the household, so that was a yeah. little um, scary. Um, and then when the role got advertised, I applied for it. So okay. I went through the process with everyone else. So, yeah. um, but by then, at least I was in and I understood what the issues were because I'd done a big listening exercise as to what was it that wasn't being delivered by this part of government uh, that our big stakeholders, including the Premier herself and her office um, and the Secretary, uh, wanted. And um, the other thing they did that was very clever was brought in all the economists into the same team. So that was very important because if government is going to spend taxpayers money on doing a project with the private sector um we have to show that it's it's an economic outcome that wouldn't happen anyway so to have all of the economists who helped us understand what sort of an impact that these projects have um both in terms of jobs and productivity and what industries they were in and where these projects were located. Was it an area of Sydney that we wanted to grow mm. in a particular industry? Having that economic rationale made it a lot easier to get things done. Cause again, it's the storytelling mm. um, and to say, this is why this is a good thing for New South Wales. So you, you quite often say that, and I think anyone listening to this uh, interview will, that's a pretty common theme. You talk about the storytelling um, yeah. and you talked about, you know, 26-year-old Amy in 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 Egypt. Um, when you were, you know, you're doing those contracts, you backed yourself. What's your advice? Like you're you're now deputy secretary, working for Premier Berejiklian, um, essentially yeah. re representing her interests and the New South Wales government and the people of New South Wales. 
do you ever like the circles you're in the meetings you're going into at that stage do you ever have a fear of am i good enough oh yeah yeah absolutely yeah so do you you want to talk about that how do you uh, because it's i mean you're quite confident here um but you're, you're playing in all these circles at an exceptionally high level and you, yep. and, I, and I imagine the economists talk a different language because uh, you, you do. You, yeah. um, so, uh, so let's get rid of that thing there. Um, how do you, when you have those moments where am I, am I good enough for this? What do you do? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So, yeah, I think again, I keep coming back to this, but one of the things that happens in the background is I am very curious. So when you are curious, it means that you can be armed with the right information, right? And be able to translate it into the language that people need. So the economists, you know, they go off on their GDP, FDI, CPI, IRR, GCE kind of like acronym fest. I'd be like, stop, stop. What does this all mean? And then they'd explain how they can quantify the economic benefit of a park um, or understand, you know, the impact of COVID restrictions on on which jobs and and which citizens are going that sort of thing. And so once you have that sort of knowledge, and you can translate it from technocrat to human, and win hearts and minds, at least I I was look you can't walk into a meeting unless you've done your homework, right? So that kind of you know kind of private schoolgirl conscientious thing is actually important and useful. Um, and I'm a big believer in not wasting people's time. So do you work before the meeting? So at least you have things um, to bring to the table. And then I, even if you have imposter syndrome, well, two things, still speak up because then you realise when you hear your voice in the room, it's not that bad and nobody laughs or dies. Um, and secondly, well, if not me, then who? Like I've been sent, if I don't lean in and, and have a go and speak with these people, then nothing will get done. Yeah. And people need that something to be done. So if it's me who'd been tapped on the shoulder to chair something, just go in there and chair it because yeah. who else is going to do it? Um, so, yeah, thinking of the outcome and the people who need us the most. So at this stage, I, I, I'm still in your hands uh, we, we, where we go because you, en- you end up as, I don't know what your, your title was in the end, director um, level. Um but something you said about what um, Premier Barry Gickleman wanted, she wanted a cultural turnaround. So here you are, this um, highly skilled person um, with, a, with you know, really social com- conscience and you're leading this new cultural turnaround uh, for, mm. the, for the state government and the, and the people of New South Wales. Is there something else, do you do something else around um, influencing mm. others, leading others? Because I, I hear all these stories about you. Uh, and, and at the moment, we're, um, we're hearing about your job. Is there another stream of Amy Brown where you're actually helping people around you be, learn what you know? Yeah, interesting. I think one thing I've been very deliberate about is the kind of peer-to-peer um, relationships and networking even um, in a positive sense, not a get something out of it sense, um, in terms of uh, who are the people at my level who would, ben- you know, who we can, I can get to know, which is always interesting because mm. people have very interesting stories and know stuff I don't know. And again, come to the table with a um, how can I help? 
and a, and a kind of posture of listening and curiosity. And I think when that happens, it builds up this beautiful bank of goodwill between the two people who are now trusted colleagues or trusted, um, you know, uh, peers or, or whatever. Um, and that is incredibly useful in a, in a business and getting things done sense. I think some mistakes I've made and, and parts of my premiering cabinet time were like this is I wanted to go really fast because I mean, you know, I, I wanted the premier of New South Wales to be happy with the work that we were doing and the secretary to love us and everyone to say, isn't this great that premier and cabinet are now doing this kind of new um, style of working. But unless you bring people along the journey, you then get to some sort of a finish line, but you're by yourself. Mm. Um, and you have a lot of people who say, we didn't, we didn't really want to be part of that. Did mm. anyone even ask us? Yeah. Um, so while it went well, <clears throat> I think a little bit was in spite of um, the fact that I hadn't slowed down enough with some of the people, particular people in the organisation, yep. um, to see what they wanted and what would help them be their best selves. We got there and strangely, it all worked out pretty well. They were ended up being a very high performing team and I was very proud of them and the work that we did. But in hindsight, I would not be so kind of hell for leather, <laughs> pedal mm. to the metal um, as I was. I think it, I was lucky it worked out mm. um, with, with there, there could have been more disgruntled people, but you know, again, I'm very relieved to say that generally people were happy with with where we ended up. So when you um, that's very that's very honest and kind of self assessing of of your own skills as the leader at that time. Um, yeah. Did you realise that at the time and do something about no. it? Or? No. Okay. Okay. No, no, no. Because I was just so. I mean, again, the big bosses was in a good way. Like the secretary was so happy that we were delivering all this work. Um, as was our, our political decision makers of, of the state. So kind of all a lot of praise and saying, this is great, all the work that you're doing and we're getting these great outcomes and we're um, anchoring, you know, precincts because precincts was the big focus at yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah. Tech and innovation precinct, Westmead innovation precinct and so on. Um, and so the fact we were delivering a lot, almost then the second question of, but how's the culture of the team? You know, that, that was the question that needed to be asked just as readily as what have you delivered? Okay. Well, what's, it's, this is where I was trying to go with that question because you've been so honest with your answer and I think it's refreshing to hear leaders be honest about mm. where it got, was right and where you got it right and where you got it wrong and, and how you might do it differently. We, we, yeah. And we're, we've all been there. Um, I still hear these stories where you do leadership workshops or leadership um, presentations where yep. every person in the room, man or woman, is just blown away by what you share um, <laughs> uh, and and your message. So wow. is that happening at this time? Yes. Oh, yeah, so that's so funny you should say that. Yes, it is. I'm giving a um, leadership speech tomorrow for women in leadership. So, yes, it's all still very active on that front. Okay. So... So it seems like a bit of a an anomaly. You you you're going hell for leather, but yet at the same time you've got time to to do the development of people around you. So how did 
if you're so passionate about Health for Leather, where did you find the time to give back? Yeah, well, I mean, I had great people, right? So they're they're beavering away, having meetings with counterparties and getting commercial deals signed. Um, and being the leader, I was more, okay, I'm ready to come off the bench for a high-impact play. If you need me to make a phone call or have a difficult conversation or pave the way for something that they need done. But I don't never feel the need to be locked in a room with my team micromanaging their every move. Yes. Um, and I don't think that's good leadership. And in your book, you talk a lot around good leadership being how you empower others to lead. Um, so because I had people I really trusted, um, then that gives you a bit more bandwidth to say, okay, so from a broader leadership perspective, what else do I want to be doing? Um, and I've always had quite a big capacity to take on things. So, um, you know, if I was invited to speak at a leadership conference or something, I would always say yes, because that's the, how else are you going to, um, you know, pass the baton to the next generation if you're not yeah. meeting with them and sharing your horror stories as yes. much as your success stories. Yeah. Um, so yes, that's something I will always do. Do you want to, um, you just said it, uh, do you want to, um, because I've heard, uh, I've heard a couple of and people make this comment that she's so open and giving with her horror stories at a, at a loop. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to go there? Do you want to? Oh, what, yeah. Yeah. What, what do you share with um, your audience that they make this comment? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, the, the types of stuff I'm speaking about at the moment um, is, you know, in leadership, some of the things I'm saying is I'm willing to be seen. These are the five things I'm talking about. I am willing to speak up. I'm willing to be curious. I'm willing to keep going. And I'm willing to empower other women, support other women. So on the I'm willing to keep going, a lot of that is around the two traits I, and this is, you know, everyone has their different two, but my two traits that I admire most in a workplace are empathy and courage. Um, and I think courage is the ability um, to keep moving forward, in, even in times of setbacks and even when you feel alone. Because sometimes in leadership, despite having all the support of, you know, your, your direct reports um, and your mentors and whatever else, there are some situations where you are literally sitting there alone. Um, and some of the stuff I walked through last year in my time of trial, um, I had to draw on a level of courage I never knew I had because as a department head, you're very exposed. Um, and when I did ask for support, unfortunately it wasn't forthcoming um, from you know people who potentially could have helped and support me. And so that's it, you, it's, it's about going, okay, how am I gonna walk through this firestorm? It's just to keep moving through it. Um, if I stop and panic, I'll just be stuck here for longer. Yeah. <laughs> Let's yeah. just keep moving. And so that's what the courage takes many forms. And, you know, your book, Courage to Lead, you give so, you tell so many stories about what courage looks like. And sometimes it's not running headfirst into a burning building or whatever. It's standing back and, and, led, and supporting your people in leadership. But in some of my situations, it's being the ability to um, draw on a level of resilience when you're sitting there alone um, in now the situation. Um... And I don't want to go into the issues, um, but I, but what, what, this is to me your story. So you're you're as you said, you're the leader, you're the director, the head of head of department. So the yeah. buck stops with you. You're in a situation that no one's ever envisaged. 
and yeah. you have you have to keep moving forward. Yeah. But but at the, you're at the same time you're I'm you haven't you still haven't gone there with with this talk today. But I I know that you're mentor to a number of people. Um, uh, you're a mum. Yeah. You're a husband. You're a daughter. Um, yeah. So when you have to draw on your resilience, how did you yeah. do that? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So, um, I mean, like I've insinuated a few times, but I'm a Christian, right? So um, part of it for me, I used to wake up at five o'clock in the morning and walk my own puppy dog, um, stepping over photos of my own face on the front page of the paper, um, which was surreal. And I listened to Christian music um, about God being my shepherd um, and my defender. And I just thought, okay, well, because I believe in something bigger than myself, um, that that kind of perspective of, you know, what I was going through was not the be all and end all. Uh, there was a, there is a bigger picture um, and, you know, someone I can trust in who is trustworthy. And so for me, my faith played a really big part in it. Mm. And then just, you, again, like I say, you're so much stronger than you think you are and you probably have the same reflection about your career that you just got to keep showing up. And that's what leadership looks like. It's not blaming others um, or curling up in a ball and crying and saying, this isn't fair. Why is this happening to me? This is so unjust. I'm not supported. Um, but just showing up, telling the truth. Um, and when you have to put your hand on the Bible, then you better tell the truth. And then come what may, you know that um, you walked in your values, you told the truth, you didn't spin things a certain way or try and protect yourself or try and protect other people. It was just literally about um, doing the next right thing. And, yeah, I think I just kept walking till I eventually walked out of it, <laughs> out of the firestorm. It's, um, all right. That was interesting. It's, inter it's interesting. Um, this podcast is normally normally audio, but um, if when you were telling where you, where you were at during that time, I, I reckon your your face rather than age actually went back about fifteen years. Like you look so you owned where you were at, giving yeah. that giving that explanation. So um, hats really hats off to you because I think what people forget in in a leadership space where you're in a space where no one's ever been is you are a mum. You're a mum. You're a, oh, big time. Yeah, you're 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 a, you're a parent. You're a husband. You're a partner. You're a you're someone's child, and you're leading an organisation. Like what what was um, most obvious to me um, at the end of what happened to you uh, when you when you actually resigned. I, I don't yeah. think LinkedIn's ever seen such a, <laughs> a a wave of we love you. You know, you have our support kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah. So. So everything you say about being a leader is, is but even in, in that space, it's still lonely. So um, yeah. you said, and you don't have to name people, but I, I expect you, did you have people that did support you, even though they might? Yeah. yeah. Did you, do you want to name a couple of them that you yeah. just, you, you will, you'll never forget what they gave yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had, so 
I won't be too specific, but some people in my organisation who were literally supporting me in the job in terms of um, prepare for the inquiry and so on, they went above and beyond, you know, to a level that I never could have predicted. Um, in terms of all the work that needed to be done for us yeah. to meet those um, kind of legislative requirements or whatever, um, but also just in a support and love for me and care for me that, you know, colleagues don't need to bring that you know, attitude to a relationship, um, to a peer or, or a colleague relationship. But sometimes you just know that there is a depth there, yeah. a depth of heart. Um, so I had that. And I had, of course, some female um, peers on who, you know, were secretaries also, other department heads. Um, and they're just, yeah, the moral support that came from them was just amazing. Um, they were available to take calls at two o'clock in the morning if I needed just to, you know, yeah. someone from outside of my situation who yeah. could understand enough because it's really hard for your friends and family to understand. They're not, they, they're in completely different sectors. Um, you know, my, a lot of my family are creatives and performing artists. Um, my parents are medical, so they really don't get um, what I do every day other than mm. they see me in the paper. I must say that it's so hard on the family. I, my dad was quite unwell at the time. Um, and I think it, it, it almost aged him seeing his yeah. daughter go through this. Um, yeah. You know, I told them to stop looking at the media because I had, mm. um, but you know, they still did. And my kids, you know, they, everyone has a view, right. Including all the parents of their yeah. friends. And so I think it was, it was harder on my kids than I might have realized as well. Of course. Of course. How, how old are your children now? So Zach's 13 and Evie's 11. Wow. So that, yeah, it would have hurt. Um, yeah, it's good on you. Um, I just take my hat off to how you have conducted yourself and continue to conduct yourself because um, uh, sometimes you need courage to do that step and stepping forward every day. So it's, um, it's pretty, pretty special. Um, do you want to go into the, you haven't really gone there, but I, I'm just trying to tease it out of you. Um, at a, at a mentor level, um, uh, you, it's not it's not up to you to name the people you're mentoring. But what do you mm. offer? What what probably give some examples about about even at that time when you're leading this powerful team? You know who how many people are you mentoring at that stage, and, and what did that look like? What do you take yeah. into a, what what do you take into a mentoring relationship? Yes. And it's tricky, isn't it? Because you're always influencing so many pe more people than you think. Um, and that applies to everyone at every role in the organisation, you know. So leaders, if you look behind and there's one person coming after you, you're a leader. Um, and your kind of leadership shadow is always bigger than you think. You know, mm. people, are, people are watching, um, looking at how you react to different things, looking at when you're misaligned with your values and calling you out. Um, so that's, yeah. I think one thing for me, though, is making sure I'm mentoring people that aren't just a mini version of myself. Um, you know, I tend to, and even in a workplace, I got some constructive criticism once that I'm often, when I'm calling out achievements in the workplace, I'm calling out, you know, other extroverted white girls, you know, mm. or, um, you know, some of the more hilarious gay guys, which maybe mm. <laughs> this is another version of me. But, you know, and it's like, hold on, who are the quiet achievers? Who are the people from different cultural backgrounds where you you need to actually work hard to pronounce their surname and not yeah. be lazy about that um, and get it right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that sort of thing. Um, people from different socioeconomic 
circumstances, um, different different stories as to what their childhood looks like and how that impacts who they are today. Um, and so making sure that I'm spreading that, um, my own emotional capital more broadly than just the easy wins of telling them, you know, oh, this is how I handled this situation because I've been in the same one. Yeah. Um, but actually saying, whoa, hold on, that's really different from me. But I can still speak into your circumstances to a certain degree and learn more from you than you're probably learning from me. Yeah. Um, so that's very powerful as well. So are those mentor relationships still happening? Uh, yeah, a bit. Yeah, yeah, as far as they can. Like, because I've left government now, I think there's a little bit of discomfort from some people, um, you know, who've been in previous departments of mine and things like that. So I think some of the relationships are a little bit, um, just haven't quite, you know, a little bit broken or a little yeah. bit faded. Um, but yes, I still meet with a lot of a lot of different people and hear about what they're up to. Um, yeah, and just learn again, learn something new every day, basically. Okay. So you said um, in there, in some of this answer, that you are actually giving a leadership talk tomorrow you know, to women in yes. leadership. So where's yes. where's that where's that happening? Uh, it's actually in Newcastle, so it's a property council lunch uh, for women in leadership. Yeah, hunter women in leadership. So it'll be it'll be good, I think. And what's and your topic is those three those five yeah, points. I'm gonna, Yes, I think I'm going to do, um, you know, five things, five reflections of being in women in leadership and also what do I pledge to do going forward? Yeah, okay. Um, so yeah. What, what what are you pledged to do going forward? Um, look, I think, and it's more building on stuff that I've done before, but some of it is that, that willing to bring your true authentic self um, and be open with people about what makes you you. That's the kind of be seen piece. Mm. Um, definitely the empowering other women. And I think what I've noticed is that women are often more reluctant to take career risks. Um, so kind of gently push, unless they feel a thousand percent qualified, yeah. pushing them to take some of those career opportunities, but more importantly, putting the scaffolding around them um, to help them be successful in it and a safety net in case things don't go well, but so that we can kind of catch them, you know, dust them off and then put them back into the game, if you will. Yeah. Um, often when leaders fail and times in my life when things haven't gone as well, um, it's sometimes it's because the scaffolding wasn't in place um, and, you know, you feel out of your depth and you think, oh, you know, who do I go to in that situation? Your support crew, it should be obvious that as soon as something comes from left field, um, you know who to call on to huddle around you and give you wisdom um, including people from outside your organisation who have impartial, strong advice, people who are well-connected and can say positive things about you, even when you're going through it. Um, you know, your sister who can bring your family a meal and your best friend who knows your favourite type of chocolate. Like, all these people are really important. Um, but it's making sure that we rally around women in different circumstances to to help them, be, you know, do their best. And Do you want to... Do you want to give an example of a time where you had support um, and a time where you, where you didn't have support? Um, yeah, where, that's a good question. Yeah, I think um, when, and we haven't really talked about this, but uh, this will cover it off quite nicely. When Premier Berejiklian set up via a stroke of a pen and an admin order, Investment New South Wales, 
um, that was great for me because it was an agent, it was its own agency and she made me the inaugural CEO, but it was still attached to a bigger department. And so you had all of those people, you know, in um, the kind of chief leadership people and good sage legal advice and a secretary who was at the top table who would kind of, you know, give you the right level of, of protection and empowerment. Um, that was really good scaffolding for me to do really well in that job. Mm. When we became our own department and I was made department head, that's a very different kettle of fish. And I don't think I quite appreciated, I mean, it all happened so fast, the gear change that occurs that when you're suddenly head of department, you're really exposed. The veil mm. between the political and the public service gets very thin yeah. um, because that's the nature of the job. And I think I assumed that I would have a similar level of scaffolding than I had in my immediately prior role, naive. Um, and I wasn't quite, you know, it wasn't until I found myself in a really difficult circumstances yeah, and looked yeah. around and thought, oh, this is not. I'm on same. my own. Um, yeah. I'm on my own. Yeah. yeah. And it took me too long to, everyone needs a break glass in case of emergency plan. And it took me too long to bring my support crew together. Yeah. Um, you know, but if, it's, I, um, if I could turn back time, that's. Yeah. That's what I, I think um, like I totally relate, like my book covers kind of suffix, not, not at your level. Uh, but, oh, um, are you uh, kidding? <laughs> uh, but um, you're saving lives, Alan. I'm just like pushing paper, but yeah. yeah. But I, I kind of, um, I totally understand what you're talking about. If you, if you have, I, I have the simplistic view. If we have support, we can, we can survive anything. Yeah. If we don't, if we don't have support, it's tough. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I take my hat off to you. Um, how you've been very honest in this interview. Do, do you? You've, you've taken us through to how you ended up in the position you're in um, and yep. how um, do you want to take us there when you actually wrote the, the I think, the post on LinkedIn where you said, I'm resigning from my position. Mm. Um, what What's going on for you then? Um, was, and I'm going to ask you a couple of questions here because I've been that, you, you just said, you know, you don't want to be the, person called up on the ground crying I've been that person I've been there mm. uh, uh, have, were you there at any stage and had to pick you or you never went there at all um look I think when I was walking through the inquiry I was really I had to be really strong again for my people because mm. this this didn't just impact me it mm. impacted everyone who worked for me and and then beyond so I was strong through that phase I think my exit from government was hard um, just the terms that I was going to be exited on and, you know, all of that mm, stuff. It's, mm. it's, it's really hard when you um, have to leave a role before you feel done yeah. and before it's, before it's your time. Yeah. Um, but, you know, my employment was pretty untenable um, and I'd given some evidence on, in the inquiry that wasn't exactly well received. And so we had to figure out how I was going to exit. So that was a really, that was a hard. Yeah. But at your um your message in that LinkedIn post was pretty positive and pretty celebratory. Yeah. Celebrate, I can't even say. Yeah. Uh, celebratory. Celebratory. Yeah, yeah. Celebrated your what what your team had achieved. Um, what did you need to pull that together to 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 write that with yeah. the fact that a, the fact that it wasn't done. I think it just came from the heart. You know, I and I say this to this day. I loved being a public servant. 
And despite the fact I had a difficult time right at the end, if anyone says to me, should I work for the public servants service? I'm like, oh my goodness, yes. Like mm. you have the opportunity to have a direct and tangible impact on the lives of citizens mm. and improve the lives of citizens in whatever your skill set or area happens to be. Why would you not bring that, you know, directly to the front line as the public service, Q being in the word service? Yeah. Um, and I do think that everyone should spend a portion of their career, short or long, um, as part of the service. And that's almost like our citizen duty. Um, and so it was quite easy to write the post because my love for the public service has never faded. Um, and I think, yeah, I'll be interested. I think my career, you know, I've still got quite a bit of runway left. So there will be twists and turns. Yeah. But at some point I will be back in a public service somewhere um, because, you know, I've got a lot to give the private sector as well. But I think I'll never feel done. You know, yeah, I've yeah. always got more to give. So, yeah. well, to me, um, like I've interviewed, I've got a lot of mates in your level, um, and we've all we've all stubbed our toes. But my yes. my 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 version is we all write our own stories. Um, we, we all have we all have something to offer. And from my point of view, if I could give you a reference, um, like there's not many people who have walked where you've walked, mm. and you still have the skills to offer you know any organization or any community um some serious absolute give back skills <laughs> so i i i wish you well um thank you uh, in your future endeavors um because it, it's just waiting it is just waiting to happen but it's um it is it's still it still must be pretty tough <laughs> so I I, yeah. I I thank you for your courage to come onto the show um one thing that I ask everyone at this stage at a leadership level of your level, um, if you were giving advice to another leader coming through, mm. um, and, and you said it doesn't have to be an Amy Brown clone, um, yeah. what, what would your advice be? Um, I think it's know who your support crew are. Um, again, you know, if it's, if it's kind of because you want advice or just because you need coffee with someone to to tell you it's all gonna be okay and to keep going like it's 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 you can't do anything by yourself we're not made to be um islands we're made to be part of community and so it's like well who who are your trusted um friends and counsel and peers and any of the above who you can go to when you need advice support chocolate you name it um and yeah I, and there's a bit of just Back yourself, like if not you, then who? So if you put in a position, yeah. yeah, if you put in a position, just walk into it, um, take a seat near the middle of the room, ask a clarificative question early on to hear your own voice and then say, okay, I'm going to contribute to this meeting because I'm here for a reason. So, yeah, yeah. bit of all that. And I think I, I, I don't normally ask this question I'm going to ask you, but I think I flagged it with you in an email to you. Um, the Courage to Lead interview series is going to branch out into a couple of panels. Um, so so I've um, I have this thought about a resilience panel um, and I want to interview four people at once um, on that panel. Uh, right. uh, and you're one of the people I'd love to include on that panel. Um, Mick Willing is the other yep. guy. Uh, Peter Scott, the former Commodore yep. of the Australian Submarine Fleet. And I'm reaching out to Carlene York at the moment as we speak. Oh, so, wow. so would you like to be part of that panel? Oh. 
Well, I can't say no when we're live on air, but also, um, <laughs> of course I would. It would be an honour. I, I mean, I could edit that, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah. thank you. Thank you. I think you'd be, um, you have so much to offer because I think we all learn from um, adversity more than we learn from yeah. success. So yes. thank you. Yeah, big time. Diamonds yeah. are made under pressure. Yeah. You're an absolute beautiful human being, and I really appreciate you giving my little humble show, uh, the, your audience and wisdom today. So thank you. Anytime. It was an absolute joy. So thank you for talking to me, Alan. Well, how good was that, listeners? That we were just treated to a really honest and personal account of what it means to be a leader sometimes, even when, even when it, when it gets tough. I'll leave you with a couple of quotes that I loved during this interview. When we do push ourselves out of our comfort zone and into the courage zone, that's where the, that's actually where the magic happens. Amy says, I think I'm always out of my comfort zone. It tends to be where I hang out. Another couple of quotes, still speak up because when you realize you hear your own voice in the room, it's not that bad and no one laughs or dies. Encourage is the ability to keep moving forward, even in times of setbacks and even when you feel alone. Now then, if you like today's podcast, please leave a short review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you choose to get your podcast from. These reviews are influential and I suggest that you share it with anyone you know who might be curious about being a better leader. Today's show was produced by Alan Sickard. It was edited by Alan Sickard and mixed by Alan Sickard. The theme music is by a musician called Savick and it is titled Legacy. I'm Alan Sickard. Thanks for listening.